The Duty of Women, Chapter 10. The Duke of Norfolk, Queen Anne's uncle, entered her chamber, for once without any fanfare. He saw Anne sitting exhausted by the fire and walked over directly to her. He did not bow. Anne, the king has been pronounced dead by the doctors. His body will be removed to his apartment shortly. We must move swiftly to gain control of the situation. Anne's father called over to him. We've discussed this. I will send George to take control of Princess Elizabeth and the Lady Mary. That is good, said the Duke of Norfolk. But we must also move here. I will announce that I will take up the regency until Anne's pregnancy has come to term. Whether the baby is a boy or a girl will make no difference. The country will need a regent for many years. And as the premier Duke of England and the heir's great uncle, I am the only one who can take this on. Wait, Norfolk, do not assume power you are not entitled to. The Earl of Wiltshire, Anne's father, was not best pleased. I am the grandfather of the heir. My daughter is the queen. But you do not have the influence, Thomas, the Duke said patronisingly. I am the only one who wields the power to control this situation. During their argument, Anne sat quietly by the fire, staring into the flames. Suddenly she looked up. No, she rapped out. I am the highest ranking ear, or did you forget? I am the queen and the mother of the heir. I will be the regent and you will support me. Now, Anne, don't be unreasonable, her father said. It has to be a man. I have men aplenty who will support me, Anne countered. And any move against me would be counted as treason. The Duke of Norfolk bent over her and threatened. You will be controlled by me, madam, or you will end up in the tower. Anne's mother and father hastened to defend her. We can work something out, the Earl of Wiltshire said. Anne will be the figurehead and we will make the decisions. It is workable. Before Anne could respond... The door to the chamber opened and Master Cromwell walked in. I noticed the look of dislike on Queen Anne's face. He was one who would not last long, I thought. He bowed deeply to the Queen and to the two noblemen. He was puffing and out of breath 
and for a moment he was silent. But then he spoke, hoarsely and urgently. He is alive, your majesty. The king is alive. He is conscious once more and has been taken to his chamber. Queen Anne collapsed and started to weep. Are you telling me the truth, Cromwell? Do not be cruel. Is he truly alive? Truly, he is alive, your majesty. A look of immense relief came over Anne's face. She was safe again. She glared at her uncle, who had dared to disrespect her, and then spoke. So lead me to him, Master Cromwell. I must see him. She got up from the settle and stood up straight, her back slightly arched. Your Majesty, I will, once the doctors have finished with him. But I can tell you that he sent you a message. What message? So he thought of me? Cromwell smiled wryly. Indeed he did, madam. He said he is stronger than any horse and you must not distress yourself. He orders you to rest and protect our unborn prince. Anne made a face as Cromwell withdrew. As he passed me, he looked me in the eye and muttered, For God's sake, cat, make your peace with Will. I am tired of him weeping every night. I tried to respond, but he was already walking towards the door. He left without a backward glance. It took two days for the king to recover. I was told that at first he forgot people's names and called Queen Anne by Catherine's name. Unsurprisingly, this did not please her, and it also renewed fears in the Berlin faction. Was the king indeed recovering, or was he about to relapse into some kind of seizure? The king was always being observed, but now it was with fearful eyes. The Duke of Norfolk, the Berlins, Master Cromwell, all of them watching with quick, greedy eyes. But on the third day, he walked from his apartment to the Queen's chamber. Yes, he leant on a stick, but this king was far from a dead man. His brilliant blue eyes darted around the courtiers as he walked. I wondered if he knew how they had been plotting and realised that, yes, he probably did. As he entered, Queen Anne rose from her seat and swept him a deep curtsy. Your Majesty, Henry, I rejoice in your recovery. The Lord God has blessed us indeed. Henry looked at her with some irritation. Get up, get up. You were foolish, Anne, to believe I was near to death. I heard that you were wailing and crying. What faith does that show in me, eh? Anne flushed. Your Majesty, you mean so much to me. I was so worried. But I was foolish. I should have known that you are invincible. So now she's playing Catherine's old game. The game of pacifying him, making him feel good. 
she was not strong enough now to shout at him. How goes my prince? Henry patted her small belly proprietarily. For a moment, a look of distaste crossed her face, but she quickly recovered. Smiling, she said, Your prince is most mighty, your majesty. He will be a warrior of that, I am sure. The king beamed. Just keep resting, my dear, and don't do anything foolish. And he turned on his heel and swept out of the chamber. As it happened, it was not Queen Anne that did something foolish, but the king himself. The next day, while resting as instructed, she heard his voice in the outer chamber. I was playing sweet, soothing music to her, but his laughter cut through it. You're a funny little thing, no doubt. I think I shall call you my mouse. A woman's voice answered softly. Queen Anne frowned and propped herself up with one elbow. Is that the king? she asked, still hazy with sleep. Yes, it is, your majesty, I answered. He sounds well and strong. Queen Anne looked thoughtful. Again the king's voice intruded. So what will you do if I set the cat on you, my little mouse? You will need me to protect you from her claws. Queen Anne struggled to a sitting position, swung her legs over the side of the bed and stood up. One of her ladies rushed to offer her an arm, but she ignored it. The king is happy, she said. I must see what makes him smile. She swept out into the next chamber, but paused, frozen, in the doorway. I came up behind her, and I saw the king sitting on a great chair with Lady Jane on his lap. He was holding her, and tickling her, and she was lost in fits of giggles. You little whore! How dare you entice my husband so? Lady Jane stopped giggling and pulled herself out of the king's embrace. He tried to pull her back, but she freed herself and curtsied to Queen Anne. I should have known something was going on, Anne muttered grimly. Lady Jane, you are dismissed from my service henceforth. I saw that Lady Jane was starting to cry. And don't try that on me, girl. You should be grateful. Nothing worse is happening to you. At this, the king stood up and faced up to the queen. Madam, you will not dismiss Lady Jane from your service. I forbid it. He turned to Lady Jane. You see, Mouse, I said I would protect you from the cat. Lady Jane gave him a small smile, but the Queen was overtaken by a mounting fury. You have betrayed me, Henry, and now you order me to keep your mistress on. I tell you, I will not do it. I will not. The King took her by the arm and she flinched at the tightness of his grip. You will turn your head and smile, madam, 
as your betters have done before you. Her face went white. All it had taken was for Catherine of Aragon to die, and she became a new stick with which to beat her successor. Lady Jane Seymour will stay in court, and she will be welcomed by you. Kiss her on the cheek, Anne. We all held our breath. Anne was not going to do this, I knew. I was right. Anne spat on the floor in front of Lady Jane. That is your kiss. I cannot prevent you from being here, but know that I hate you. Before the king could remonstrate with her, she gathered up her skirts and ran back into the next chamber. We could hear her screams and cries until they were muffled as her mother hurried in to quieten her. King Henry took Lady Jane by the shoulders and planted a kiss on her forehead. Don't worry, little mouse. I will protect you, I promise. He glared around the room at us all. If anything happens to this maiden, you will all be punished. Spittle from his lips hit Lady Jane's face, but she appeared to welcome it and smiled weakly at him. He turned, kissed her hand and strode out of the chamber, leaving the rest of us speechless. I asked her about it later. She had become very coy and would not speak about the king, but she did say that his interest in her was a spiritual one. She told me it was a shame that Anne's jealousy was putting the wrong light on it. Cat, you, you know I'm not the quick king's mistress, nor will I ever be. I liked her, but she wasn't clever. Like most of the women at court, she had no power to choose. So I was still friendly with her, although many of the Queen's ladies had become cool. Queen Anne herself was icy, demanding that Jane perform the most menial of duties. She was sent to carry messages, to clear out cupboards, to stitch on her own a mountain of shirts for the servants. I came across her, crouching outside the Queen's chamber, afraid to go in. My lady, what is the matter? That's the third time she's told me to go to hell. She hates me, Cat. I don't think I can take any more. I'll ask the king if I can return to Wolf Hall. I'm tired of the court and I want an ordinary life. For me, the court was the most exciting place on earth. But I couldn't blame Lady Jane for wanting to go back to an ordinary life. Sometimes, at the moment, it was what I wanted. To seek out Will and go back to an ordinary life with him. To forget being a court musician and to become a contented lawyer's wife with a baby in my arms and children around my skirts. It was a lovely dream. But then something happened which would make it even more unlikely. It was in the evening, five days after the King's accident. I was in the Queen's chamber, playing softly as she and her ladies played cards. The atmosphere was subdued. The King had not forgiven Anne for her outburst, and so had not visited her since. The excuse he gave was that he did not wish for her to become distressed again. That was him. 
always wanting to be the saintly husband, even though I knew him to be a demon. Queen Anne threw her cards on the table and got up. I am so bored, she complained. Ladies, will you dance with me? I need something joyful. Of course, all the ladies laid down their cards and stood up. I changed to playing a lively galliard. Queen Anne stepped out to lead the dance and all the ladies lined up behind her. Suddenly, she gave a cry and sank to her feet. I stopped playing immediately and her mother ran to her. Anne, what ails you? You must not dance, it is foolish. I will never forget Anne's face when she looked up at her mother. She was very frightened. She let out another scream, this time long and agonising. Mother, I had not started to dance. This happened. I am in so much pain I cannot stand. Her mother and two other ladies picked her up by the arms and dragged her to the bedchamber. She screamed at every touch and with every step. I have been in some birthing chambers before and since, daughter, but none of them were as pitiable and as terrifying as this one. Anne's screams were not just at the physical pain, but also the mental agony. She knew she was going into labour, but her baby was not yet viable, and she knew that too. Her mother sent for the midwife. Tell her it is just for her advice. Her Majesty is not in labour. She was hoping desperately that a herbal infusion, some prayers and the midwife's gentle advice might work. Queen Anne could not be losing her baby. It was a difficult pregnancy, that was all. But Anne's screams continued and rang through her apartments. I knew that people would be whispering and soon the king would know. The midwife came, felt Anne's forehead and then her stomach. She looked grave. Her Majesty's in labour, she asserted, and I'm sorry to tell you that nothing can stop it. Nonsense, Anne's mother said. Why, when I was pregnant with George, I nearly lost him, but I took some herbs and my pain stopped. The midwife shook her head. I'm sorry, my lady, but nothing will stop this labour. At this point, Anne let out an earth-shattering cry that must have sounded through Greenwich. Let us pray to the Virgin Mary. The Countess of Wiltshire was desperate. If only we had her girdle to protect my daughter. Anne turned on her mother, her face contorted with rage. Have you learnt nothing? That was superstition. That was what I wanted to change. She howled and then the midwife took control. She parted Anne's legs and bent between them. Grabbing a clean linen cloth, she put it between them. Now, Your Majesty, the baby is coming. After another terrible cry, Anne grunted and strained hard. I didn't look, but a moment later, the midwife showed us all the cloth. A small red mass lay on there. Recognisably a baby, although far too small to survive. The midwife wiped it off and showed it to Anne. 
A boy, your majesty, but born too soon. She motioned to a servant to take away the cloth. I felt a pang. I could not help but remembering that when I was born to Catherine of Aragon, they had thought I was dead and taken me away like that, like rubbish. It was only later that the midwife saw me breathing, and by then it was too late. I was adopted and never knew my real mother until much later on. Anne lay there silently while the midwife cleaned her up. There was no hope that her little boy could be alive. It was far, far too early. Her mother was crying silently, her back to Anne. It struck me that there is no one more alone than a queen who has just miscarried a boy. To lose a girl would be tragic, but to lose a boy, especially now, was calamitous. The king came to visit the next morning. He was subdued, and his entrance was without the normal grins and jokes he made when moving around the palace. For once, he took no notice of Lady Jane Seymour, who was standing alongside a group of ladies. The chamber was in near silence as he walked through the door to where his wife lay. The door closed, and we were left wondering what was going on. Lady Jane nudged me. Now he will have less patience with her tempers and my life will get better. I wondered what she meant by telling me her life would get better. Was she plotting to become queen? But no, Lady Jane was not a plotter, even if her brothers were. She turned and smiled at me, her plain face almost beautiful. The king has told me to go to him if she's cruel to me. Now there's no baby, he will be able to be strict with her. Poor innocent Jane. All she was thinking about was how to stop Anne's bullying. I would swear on my life, daughter. She did not imagine that she would be our queen before the end of the year. Nobody did. Maybe her brothers had hopes, but none of us could foretell what was going to happen over the next few months. The door to Anne's chamber opened and the king appeared. He paused at the door and said, When you're up, I will speak to you. His voice was cold, colder than the icy January morning. He walked out among us and we all made our obeisance. As I rose, I saw he was looking directly at Lady Jane. There was no desire in that look. Instead, his face was calculating, weighing up the odds. He caught my eye and looked away towards the main group of ladies. I see God will not give me male children, he said, loudly enough for Anne to hear. He looked back at her door sourly and then made his way out of her apartment. It was another week until I saw Queen Anne. For seven days she remained closeted in her chamber, huddled against the cold winds that whipped around the palace. With her was her mother and her friend Margaret Wyatt, Sir Thomas's sister. Every few hours food was brought into the chamber and later removed, less than half eaten. She was in deep stages of grief 
and shock. And she didn't want music. She didn't want poetry or cards or even a priest. Even her mother despaired of bringing her out of her misery. Tom Wyatt told me what he knew. His sister had been present when the king visited and according to her, there had been a bitter exchange between the couple. She had blamed him for her miscarriage, telling him that the sight of him flirting with Lady Jane Seymour had brought it on. He rounded on her for that, telling her angrily that she would do well to ignore his flirtations as her jealousy was unattractive. No man loves a scold, Anne. You must know that. He'd spoken with a chilling objectivity, as if imparting some valued piece of learning. But she had wept when he spoke and had declared her love for him. Sire, I am sorry I displease you so. It is because I love you more than life itself. Tom Wyatt's eyes filled with tears when he told me this. I knew he was remembering the times when she had told him she loved him. Those times were gone, without the possibility of return. He must wonder if Anne loves Henry, I thought. Would it be better for him if he thought she had fallen into marriage against her will? Or was it easier to believe, as I did, that Anne genuinely did love the king? Apparently she told him that her love for him was so intense it was impossible for her not to feel jealous when she saw him flirting with another woman. She compared herself to those who marry to make alliances who can afford to turn a blind eye to their husband's affairs. I knew she would have meant Catherine of Aragon here. She was saying that Catherine and Henry's marriage had been a political one when no love was involved. Therefore, Catherine did not feel the pangs of jealousy in the same way as a wife in a love match. She was clever, all right, and there was a time when Henry would have been influenced by her argument. But now Catherine was dead. Making a comparison with her became a lot less profitable. Another visitor was the Duke of Norfolk, who was bawled out by Anne. You told me the king was dead, and then you plotted to unseat me. She paused for a moment, then cried out, Family or no family, you will stab me in the back. I can foresee it. Stony-faced, he muttered, That is nonsense, Anne, and you know it. I had to make plans, and you were part of them. He bowed, took her hand, and kissed it. There is no point in reliving what has gone before. We were faced with an emergency and had to act quickly. God be praised the king has survived and the emergency was averted. At this point, Anne had broken out in weeping and the duke had withdrawn with as much haste as was decorous. He paused in the outer chamber, his face grey with stress and spoke to Anne's mother. Try to get her to eat something, sister. We must get her well and back into the king's bed as soon as possible. That is easily said, brother. But you know, Anne was always an obstinate one, fiery in her love, desperate in her misery. She will only eat when she is ready. Heaven help us, 
said the Duke. We are dependent on the whims of a madwoman. Talk some sense into her and get her up and churched as soon as you can. I will do my best, she replied, but I do not know how long it will take. She has just lost a baby. The Duke of Norfolk bowed briefly and left, shaking his head at the intractability of women. I sought out Thomas Wyatt. I wanted to talk with him, and not just about the Queen. I had not been sleeping, and every night I thought of Will. Should I try and repair our relationship? But then, what if he rejected me again? I knew Sir Thomas would be a trustworthy person to confide in. Maybe I even thought he might beg me to stay. Would I like to be his mistress? Well, yes. His kindness to me had solved the, my wounds after the breakup with Will. But it was a dangerous path to take, putting myself so much into one man's power. He took me to his chamber and I remembered the night we had spent together. Sit, cat, he said. Have some wine with me. He poured two goblets of wine and handed me one. I took a sip, watching his handsome face. He was always beautifully dressed. His black doublet and hose emphasised his spare, muscular physique, and the white linen shift that showed at his wrists was edged with lace. I loved his hands and shivered to remember how they had touched me. So the queen is in the depths of despair, he said. The king has not been again to see her. Her mother nags her and her father shouts at her. It gives me pain to think of her. I haven't seen her, not really, since the miscarriage. Nor I, he said. But Margaret tells me what is happening. I wish she would admit me. She needs her friends around her now. I looked at him, talking so earnestly, and took a risk. Do you still love her? I asked, already knowing what the answer would be. He smiled sadly. I will always love her, Cat. You know that. But she's not for me, and life goes on. I would die for her, but I know I cannot live with her in this life or the next. So what will you do? You cannot spend your life as a single man. You know that I'm married, Cat. I cannot change that. He looked at me thoughtfully and took another sip of his wine. So what is the future for you, Tom? Will you take a lover? Like you, Cat. My marriage is broken. Maybe I should take a lover. He looked into my eyes. Is that what you want, Cat? Should we become lovers? He took my hand and kissed it, very softly, looking into my eyes. I was so tempted. He was a handsome man, a kind man, and easy to get along with. But something stopped me. I knew I had to give Will one more chance. Of course, Tom and I had been intimate, but only once. That was survivable. B. 
Being Tom's mistress, on the other hand, would end things with Will forever. I gently removed my hand. I was going to say yes, Tom. That was what I wanted just an hour ago. Your attention to me has been entirely welcome and I love you dearly. But I have to try again with Will. He looked at me with sad eyes, but then smiled. I know, Cat. Like me, you have a longer-lasting love. But unlike me, you may be able to rekindle it again. And life with me as a mistress would be very difficult for you. You could not take part with me in my duties or in court functions. Oh, I would look after you. I'd set you up in a house and hire some servants. But you would be on the sidelines. He laughed gently. And Cat, I do not see you on the sidelines. Not ever. I smiled regretfully at him. I must be mad turning you down. He nodded emphatically. Yes, indeed. That night we had together was so perfect. I will never forget it. You will not be able to, as I will write poems about it, which will outlive me for certain. But I will not tell Will they're about me. He took my hand and grasped it tightly. That would not be wise, Cat. Go to him when you can and mend your hearts. I left and resolved to seek Will out as soon as I had a few hours spare. But I knew I would always remember Tom. And I see myself in some of his poems that were handed around at court, though I never copied them. There was one verse, though, that I haven't forgotten. My lute, awake, perform the last labour that thou and I shall waste and end that I have now begun. For when this song is sung and passed, my lute be still, for I have done.